we'd like a word. Welcome back to part two of this uh, episode of We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colden. And we're in the Nehru Centre, the preeminent cultural institution for Indians in the UK with the author, Amish, author of the book War of Lanka. I wanted to come back to a point that you made about that it's good that stories adapt and evolve and change. Because something that bugged me for an awfully long time in this country was that we've got a wealth of wonderful old folk tales and stories and nursery rhymes, and the rest of the world doesn't know them. And I think part of the reason people don't know them is because we also have hundreds and thousands of preeminent scholars and, and, and people who study these things. And there seems to be a sort of attitude in Britain that if something has any kind of historical sense to it, then it should be preserved and never changed, you know, and pinned like in a case, like a dried butterfly in a case. And as a result, the, the old folk tales that our great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were told don't have any resonance with kids today. Mm. And, the, and so consequently, they don't get told. You know, whereas stories that came from Europe or came from Africa or came from India and places like that, because they've carried on evolving, they've stayed current with kids. I mean, with the result that if you take something like Little Red Riding Hood, mm. it's probably one of the most famous fairy tales. Well, the original version is actually quite nasty. It's all about, <laughs> it, it's a warning to young, young girls, don't get into bed with strangers and don't let men lure you away because they'll do beastly things to you. Over time, it evolved into, you know, that the bad man became a bad wolf. And then uh, it then became a warning to the women who went to the court of, you know, the French kings about, you know, predatory men. And, and then a woodcutter was introduced. So there was always a man to save the day because that reflected the, the values of the time. And it's carried on evolving. I mean, even Roald Dahl wrote a version of it, which was Little Red Riding Hood being very modern and when the wolf threatens her, she pulls a gun out and shoots him and turns him into a, a fur coat. It's, it's, but the point is, <laughs> the, yeah, no. But the, the point is, the story is still with us. Everyone knows what Little Red Riding Hood is. You know, any child in Britain would know what Little Red Riding Hood is because the story has carried on and has remained relevant. I mean, is that kind of what you're doing here, trying to make the stories more relevant to a modern readership so that the stories will continue? You know, actually, if you see through life, because. A search for purity can often end up killing that which you love, yeah. right? <laughs> because the best way to purify something is to embalm it. And I think the strength of the... And speaking dispassionately, I mean, as an Indian, of course, we suffered from the British Raj. Uh, but there's no denying that for uh, a few centuries, you guys were uh, the most successful culture on earth. And there were the Buddha bin strengths that you had, right? Among uh, them was your adaptability, Right? See that in your language itself, uh, English adapted to so many tongues, so many pronunciation types because it did not seek purity, right? There was this uh, book I'd read, uh, The Adventure of English by Melvin Bragg. And if I remember a line in that book uh, correctly, it said the strength of English is in its enthusiasm to bastardize itself, uh, you know, the language, because it just adapts, right? And there is a value in having adaptability, but having a core that's rigid. You need that ideal mix. If you're so rigid that you can't stand up when the winds of change become a storm, yeah, then like a tree, you'll fall over, right? But if you're so adaptable, like you're just some grass, anyone can just walk all over you, then you have no identity of your own. You need that ideal mix where some parts remain rigid, but you adapt to the, to the rest. And I thought the British used to have this. Which is why you guys ended up ruling so much of, of the world. 
and it's not going against your culture to be so adaptable again indians always had it we lost it a bit for a few centuries and i think it's being revived again right now and as we become more successful and more confident you need an ideal mix of both i mean to be honest i think most british people are like that but unfortunately we never seem to have those people in charge this thing's with the problem but it's funny you're, the, the melvin bragg quote reminded me of another quote i saw from a british comedian eddie izzard where he he called us a mongrel nation and he said mm. but that's a good thing because the mongrel is the smart dog that steals all your biscuits and sells them to the local kids whereas the pedigree dog is very pretty but a little bit stupid chokes on a biscuit and dies mm. <laughs> he said you know there's strength in being a mongrel there's strength in adaptability there's strength yeah there's strength in actually taking influences from elsewhere bringing them in and making them part of your own identity it really it really is and i think the english language is a great example i mean about 40% of it is French. Yeah. Because yeah. we were ruled by the French for 400 years, yeah. you know. Which is why the word for the meat would be French, but the word for the animal would be traditional right. Anglo-Saxon. Like which is yeah, yeah, which is very unlike most other languages. I think English is the only language that needs a thesaurus, you know, a book with lots of different meanings yeah. for the same thing. You know, like like in a proper indian language sanskrit is of course very scientific but most indian languages are phonetic so the very concept of a spelling contest it makes no sense because why will you spell the word differently from how it's pronounced it in our family i'm the, we, uh, our uh, generation is the first to be educated in english my parents were educated in hindi my grandfather knew sanskrit very well and knew hindi too many of the concepts of english itself they, they don't know how to imbibe it like this concept of a spelling contest why the hell will you spell the word differently from how you pronounce it in a phonetic language it makes no sense but this shows english's adaptability and it shows the adaptability of the culture that it emerged from which is what made you successful but you need that ideal blend of both here, here. would you read a bit from your book for us so i have a copy here let me take this out of it bookmark <sighs> So you see, this which, is which, the author reading which part the Which is book. always nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's always nice. It's always, it's always nice to hear the author reading their own words. How about, because I, you, you just sprung this on me, so I can't think of which section would be short enough to read. So how about if I read the dedication and the beginning? Okay, yeah. go for it. Right. So there's, I normally begin with some saying. So, death may be the greatest of all human blessings. Uh, said Socrates. So then my thought after that. In fact, the greatest blessing is when you never have to die again, when you attain moksha or nirvana, liberation from the unrelenting cycle of rebirths. Do good, help others, perform positive karma, lead a worthy life, and earn that greatest blessing for yourself, a death to end all deaths. Sounds ominous, a death to end all deaths. It's one of those philosophical things which only a dharmic guy will understand actually. Because yeah, yeah. for us actually death isn't something to be scared of. It's, it's like a long sleep. Yeah. You'll wake up once again. Okay, so here's a question from, from a listener. And I think it's Anupam Sani. And Anupam asks, you know, working on historical or mythological fiction will have advantages and disadvantages because... Number one, what are they? And secondly, you don't have absolute freedom to change the facts to suit plot twists, I suppose, mm. because you're working from an original text, I guess. So how do you cope with that? Actually, sometimes having uh, limitations to what you can do makes you even more creative. 
you know uh, muscles uh, grow against resistance right so uh, it's good to have some limitations because you have to somehow still make it work still make it new for the reader when they all know what the ending is going to be uh, that ravan is going to get killed lord ram will win well how do you do that give us an example if you can think of one um so for example how the war happened there's this uh, part of the traditional story is that lord ram built a bridge across the sea from india to sri lanka as you know it's a very narrow sea the question was why would he do that because there's actually a very good port on the eastern side where you know normally and there were heavy ship trading till that time till the relatively modern era and from that port there's a river going all the way up to the center where the capital was so i put in battle strategy out there that actually ravan's defenses were attuned for a naval attack it was designed for a naval attack and so lord ram sent some ships as as a diversion yeah as a diversionary tactic and he and he sent ships with very few soldiers and ravan backed up all his defense forces out there and while ravan's attention was focused on the west coast on the east coast sorry from the northwest coast he built a quick bridge across and marched over and before he knew it he was at the capital a bit like what happened to uh, the british in singapore they were expecting an attack from the sea and all their defenses were towards the sea and the japanese just came from the landward side and they didn't know what did them because they didn't have defenses on that side actually the idea came to me from uh, from what happened in in singapore so you do things like this you make the war interesting the philosophical conversations that get put things like this actually make it worth reading and there's a lot about geography currents mm. the type of coral that you can use to build the mm. type of sand and very uh, brutal war a brutal war but also um you might think the sea is salt water but then there's a layer on top that might be fresh water of bay of bengal actually it's actually true bay of bengal has a surprisingly high amount of uh, fresh water on top why because it has among the greatest rivers on earth just debouching into it right not just the ganga brahmaputra river system which carries the most water of any rivers but even other massive rivers iravadi kalvi and from southeast asia uh, mahanadi godavari krishna kaveri from india all of it just comes on the bay of bengal so actually the top layer of of the bay of bengal is is not that brackish it's not that salty you see you learn not just about history but about geology <laughs> but you can still have fun reading it i'm assuming it didn't it wasn't a difficult read i learned from it <laughs> and i i wasn't expecting to be learning that sort of thing let's talk about how you write how and where and when i normally write in the mornings i'm normally up by 5:36 i'm a relatively boring guy so i'm asleep by 10 10:30 realize i do actually four jobs simultaneously so i have this diplomatic job i'm director of the nehru center and minister culture and education at the indian high commission to the uk i write books which is my my main source of income i uh, also host documentaries for discovery tv i also actually am producing a film as well of one of my books and you're recently married i got married that's not a job though that's not a job but are I, you married seriously i am you call your wife a job okay <clears throat> No, I'm going to I'm I I am going to tweet this. I'm going to tweet this. <laughs> That's okay. We I'm going to edit it out. <laughs> no, I'm not. That's But the point I'm making takes it takes up time and you'd want to you'd want yeah, to so devote I'm, time to it. So if you've got four <coughs> time consuming things and other things in your life that are important, family, then how do you fit everything in? 
and I guess you get up at 5 in the morning. Get up at 5, 5.30 in the morning. I'm a workaholic, luckily. And my most productive time, all my creative stuff happens in the morning. That's when my brain is most uh, fresh. So which is why I like to uh, write in the mornings, I guess. Yeah. How do you do it? Do you write with a pen and paper, a laptop? What do you look at? How are you sitting? Tell us a bit about that. I type straight uh, into the laptop. I don't really need much. I can kind of write anywhere. I just listen to music. I need music while writing always. And I need music that matches the mood of what I'm writing. Most of my eight of my 10 books are fiction. And fiction essentially drives on, you need to get the reader to turn the page, right? So your emotions have to be invested into it. And an author needs to feel those emotions. And somehow that music kind of gets me into that mood. The words don't matter. I zone the words out of the music. But the mood of the music has to match the mood of what I'm writing. And I eat tons of cream biscuits while uh, while writing. So kind, the kind of cream biscuits I got when I was a kid, somehow, I don't know, that just kind of puts me into that mood. I just need those two things. That's it. And what about editing and revising, that sort of thing? Yeah, as has been rightly said, you should write like you're drunk and edit like you're sober. I don't relook at stuff when I'm writing. I just let it flow. But normally it's it's actually my first draft which uh, and there aren't that many story changes i'm kind of stubborn so i'm difficult for my editors uh, but you know if if they have things like you know okay this character is kind of behaving out of character you know in this scene or this philosophy is not clear okay i get that but if they have feedback like make this change and it might appeal to this reading group and make this change it might appeal to some awards committee i don't care about that i i write the way it comes to me for me, that is very important because the purpose is just to make money. I mean, one can continue, one could have continued being a banker. I mean, it's 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 a good legal way to make money. And I used to be a, I used to work in a bank. Writing cannot just be about money. It has to be about the voice of your soul. At least I feel that. Uh, write what feels right to you. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, no problem. It's a very good point. Now, the other thing I will ask is that you generally have writers falling into one of two camps. They call them plotters and pantsers. And a plotter is someone who sits down and meticulously works out how the story is going to go before they start writing, whereas the pantser flies by the seat of their pants. They just sit down and think, I'm going. It's, it's, like, it's like setting off for a journey, knowing what your destination is, but you don't put the sat-nav on. You just try and figure your way there. Which are you? I am clearly the panther. It's not just, you know, the plots. With My books are... You know, I, uh, there are there are two series which are actually connected to each other. The Shiva trilogy is three books, but it can be just be seen as one very long story divided into three books for convenience. You can't release a 2,000-page book. That's a human rights violation. Uh, so, you, you know, I divided it into uh, three books. And uh, the Ramchandra series is a very complex narrative style, actually, because the first three books are in a multi-linear narrative, like that, you know, the Japanese movie Rashomon. And uh, the fourth book brings the first three narrative streams together into a common narrative. So the first three books actually trace the stories of the three main characters, Ram, Sita, Ravan. Because I believe that unless you understand the characters deeply, you, don't, you won't understand why they do what they do. And the fourth book, War of Lanka, is where all the three narratives merge. It's kind of a complex style. I th- I'm lucky my readers like complex but even more complicated is actually the Ramchandra series and the Shiva trilogy are actually linked to each other. The Ramchandra series can be seen as a 1500-year prequel to the events of the Shiva trilogy. There's no way anyone can plan this this stuff out over 12 years. I mean, that, I mean 
I'd be I'd be lying if I said I'm such a genius. I planned this out over 12 years and left clues in Immortals of Meluha, which released in 2010, which I tied up in War of Lanka, which released in you know uh, 2022. It's ridiculous. Somehow it just kind of ties up. I have no idea how. And even when I'm writing, I'm just sure this scene has to be written this way. This character has to die. I have no idea why. I just know this is the way it is, and I just go with the flow. That's how it should be. Well, let's tie up. the first two parts in part 3 so we'll bring this part 2 of this episode of weed like a word with amish author of war of lanka to a close and we'll see you in part 3